What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another Ask Us Anything webinar. A whole bunch of questions come through today. I don't think I'm going to be able to get through them all, but I will try to get through most of them. Um, I've deranged them in order, so our silver and gold members, their questions will go first. And hopefully if there's time afterwards, I'll answer everybody else's questions. But yeah, if you want your questions answered first, if you want the kind of VIP treatment from the Brojo coaches, uh, enroll as a contributing member at silver or gold and it's exactly what you'll get. Enough of all that. Anyway, let's have a look at what we've got coming up today for the questions. Got a real range all over the place. We're going to be having a look at what to do about having a depressed family member. We're going to have a look at what's the, you know, uh, I did a post recently about people not liking you and why that's not actually painful. I'm going to have a talk about that. Maybe have a look at what to do when you're in a relationship with somebody who's sabotaging it because of their insecurities and you want to help them. I've got questions about psychedelics, questions about journaling, questions about education, got all sorts of stuff going on and we'll just have to see how we get on today. Mm. So <clears throat> first question comes from Angie and she says, what about having a severely depressed family member striking the balance right between being responsible for them versus being too involved versus being too far removed or indifferent. This is, this is a really tricky one. Um, this is, I think in the same category as having a severely ill family member, like somebody who has cancer or something to that extent, having to take care of someone who has a chronic problem, a long-term suffering that they're going through um that you have ultimately very little power over and it can be devastating i've, I've been through this myself um different occasions i won't share the details because they're other people's uh, kind of private details but i've been the caring family member for a couple of people one who's severely depressed another who was traumatized by sexual abuse and another who uh, had a severe um, injury that meant that they were basically helpless uh, for about six to 12 months. So I've been there helping people with those kinds of um, things before. And before you even decide like what's the right balance between helping them being too involved or being too cold or whatever, first and foremost, you have to take care of yourself. Okay. This is the biggest lesson I learned is it is so hard to care for other people if you're neglecting your own health and well-being, And it becomes really easy to do that uh, when you're, you know, when you, when you care deeply for the person who's suffering. So if you really love the person you're taking care of, it becomes easy to blur the line between help and self-sacrifice. And the thing is, they don't need you to self-sacrifice. That's not going to help them in the long run. One thing to understand is that people suffering in these ways, and I'll focus on depression because that's what the question's about, 
they also have the added guilt of being a burden, a lot of them. Some of them don't. Some, some are sort of needy or clingy or have no sort of shame about receiving support, but many of them do, especially if that person was quite uh, independent or fully functioning before this. They're going to feel really bad watching others suffer to help them. And so you're not really helping them by doing that. If they can see that you're tired and stressed and that you're neglecting your work and that you're putting on weight simply because you're helping them, they're not going to feel better seeing that. Okay. What they need more than anything is to be surrounded by healthy people. That's the most helpful thing you can do for somebody who's suffering with depression. They need that kind of counteractive force. So the the chemicals in their body are saying, be sad and be apathetic and fuck everything. And so they need a counteractive force to be surrounded by people, not people being falsely positive because they can see right through that. But just people going like, look, you can get on with life. I'm doing it. See? And you don't have to say it. You just do it right in front of them. You get shit done. You're not complaining. You're taking good care of yourself. And you're not rubbing it in their face. You're not going to see, be like me. You're, you're just showing them that you're not going to be destroyed by their depression. And so that they're not going to have that guilt, that burden of like, oh my God, not only am I a pathetic loser, I'm also hurting others, you know? And this is, you know, this focus on putting yourself first, which is something I go on and on about. And so many people resist against me. They think it's selfish to put yourself first and they don't realize it's actually selfish not to. You put yourself first, you take care of your shit, which is not the same as being too far removed or indifferent. You're still going to care about them just after you've cared about yourself. That's all. You know, they're, they're second in the queue. It's not a long wait. They'll, they'll get their needs met every single day after you've taken care of your own needs. And sometimes that will mean delegation. So also there are, there are times when you're taking care of someone and you become selfish. Now I've seen this, um, I'm seeing this right now with, a, with an incident that's happening in my life where somebody's trying to take care of their loved one and they're so obsessed with it that they won't let anybody else help and they won't share that burden with anyone. They've got that kind of pride or ego around it. And what they're doing is they're burning themselves out, which doesn't help the person that they're trying to support. And they're depriving others of the, the joy of being helpful. So there are others who want to get involved and help and spread the load around and would feel great about themselves if they could do that. And this person's preventing them from having that joy. They're essentially keeping all the, that good helping to themselves. Um, and they think they're doing something helpful by doing that, but they're actually, everybody's suffering because of this. Nobody's winning. So you're allowed to take breaks. You're allowed to delegate it off to say, you know, it's somebody else's turn to take care of her today or him today because I'm fucking knackered. I need to take care of my own shit. I'm behind on work. Somebody else step in here, you know, and, and share that load around. You don't have to be the superhero who does everything. Nobody actually benefits in the long run from you trying to do that. It's time you have to put aside your ego and bring in as much support and delegate as much support as possible, which is not the same as being indifferent. You're still going to be there and you're going to care. It's just you're going to do what works rather than what makes you look like the hero. Now, being too involved is where you try to control this thing. It's where you try to fix it. 
where you go from support to intervention. And you've got to understand, unless you are their clinical psychologist or psychiatrist, it is not your job to intervene with depression. And unless you are an expert in the therapeutic and psychiatric treatment of depression, odds are what you think is helping doesn't. There's kind of a counterintuitive thing about depression. A lot of people think, God, you just need to cheer them up. You need to get them out of bed and get them moving and you know, surround them with positivity and all that. No, that makes depression worse. You don't do that. That's, that's counterproductive. The best thing you can do is just be there for them. And especially to not let them push you away. It's one of the most powerful things you can do for someone with depression is just show them like no matter how fucking misery guts they get, no matter how much they just throw out spite or they're difficult or resistant or just down, you won't let it phase you. You're not going to get sick along with them. You're not going to, you know, take this thing in um, to show that you are this like relentless, consistent rock that they can cling to. You're, you're the kind of the calm in the storm. And your main job is not to fix the depression. It's to make it okay. This is the key thing that a supporter can do. You leave the treatment to the psychologists and the psychiatrists. And yes, if someone is severely depressed, they should be looking at getting on medication. Absolutely. They should be seeing a psychologist regularly. Your job is to make sure that that's as easy as possible for them. You can't force them to do it, but you can, um, you know, you can drive them to the sessions. You can make it easy to find who to talk to. You can constantly normalize it. That's the key is you've got to make sure, look, uh, whatever's going on for them, it's fine. It's okay to be like that. They don't need to get out of it. There's nothing, you know, they're not a bad person. You got to treat it like they've got a, a knee injury and they're desperate to walk and you just got to slow them down and just say, no, no, you're not ready to walk yet. And that's okay. You're injured. Depression is essentially a physical injury. Almost definitely. Uh, quite often it's called, a, called an illness, but when you look at what's actually happening in the brain, a malfunction of neurotransmitters, it's, really no different to breaking a bone or tearing a muscle or uh, you know having severe impact on an organ brain injury it's very very similar it really belongs in that category they they aren't doing anything wrong they're not thinking wrong or you know it's not because they don't live right they don't need to be corrected though those causal factors in depression will need to be dealt with in time well, they need to say now that they're depressed, what they need is to be okay with being depressed. That's the first and most important step. If they can accept it, they're surrounded by people who accept it and go, yeah, it's normal to feel sad. And yeah, I know some days you're not going to want to get out of bed and that's okay. I'm here for you no matter what you need sort of thing. Then when it comes to things like, well, you know, what people do in your situation is they go talk to a psychologist, you know, that's, that's what's next if you're keen to get out of this. You know, I'm not going to force you, but that's normal. No shame in that. Tell them about the time you went and saw a therapist or whatever. Um, but you want to be careful that you don't want to manipulate them into doing it. You just want to normalize it. It's normal to have depression. It's normal to struggle with it. 
it's normal to go and get support for it. Totally, totally normal. Whenever you're ready, we'll go do that normal thing. And I'm not going to push you, but it's all just normal. You know, sharing stories. Yeah. Uh, my friend, she just found some new medication. Now she's able to work again. It's really working well for her. You know, let me know if you ever want to know more about that. Just this constant, like, providing normality to the depression because it's the experts will do the treatment stuff. Your job is not to treat them. That's too involved. Okay. You're not responsible for them. They're still responsible for themselves. You're responsible for being supportive. If you love them, that's your job. Not let them get you down. They're only going to get you down if you try to fix them. And I learned that personally. Um, if you try to control this thing, make it go away quicker to, you see them doing stuff that you're like, oh, you're making it worse and you get all frustrated with them. You're like, stop doing that that's where you're going to become depressed. You know, you're going to catch it from them. Depression is rage turned inwards. You know, they're, they're, they're very angry about something and they've turned it on themselves and then it's just crushed them. You pushing them to change their behavior is not going to help that. You'll want to do it. You'll see them. It's like watching someone eat poison and you're like, why are you eating the poison? Stop eating the fucking poison. And you're just like, this is ridiculous. And there'll be moments when you're working with someone who's depressed or someone who's badly injured or sick, where you just see them like making it worse. And I'm not saying don't intervene with that. What I'm saying is you can't control them. Okay. This is not your job to fix. But you can gently point it out. You can be like, yeah, I saw that you were, you worked really hard this morning, even though you're depressed. Um, I'm guessing that's why you feel extra bad this afternoon. You know, you know, if I was you, I'd probably, uh, try to take it easy though maybe if i was you i'd do the same thing because it's difficult you know and you can point out look you're you're making it worse when i help someone with this one of the best things i could do was actually help them realize that that's what they have they have depression i kept saying look you know you're tired all the time you're burning yourself out all the time you're sad you're crying for no reason uh, as far as i know that's what depression looks like you know i think you have depression and that's normal everybody goes through it at some point unless they're a psychopath you know um, and if they don't deal with it properly, it gets worse. So if you ever want to deal with it properly, we can talk about that. You can set boundaries, which isn't the same as trying to control them. But let's say they refuse to do what's good for them. Like a classic one with people who are depressed is like burning themselves out. with This big burst of like trying to like do everything. And you know, like, no, you need to be resting and recuperating. And dealing with your issues properly, not like smothering it in busyness. What you can do is kind of take away privileges. And what I mean by that is like if there's something that they helped you with, they're now not allowed to help you with that until they deal with their depression properly. You know, it's not punishment. It's just like moving a sharp object away from a child. You know, it's like, no, no, that, you're going to hurt yourself with that. So we're going to take that away. Um, like if someone like sits in their room all day smoking weed, well, don't go and buy their weed for them at least. You know, don't enable their behaviors. A lot of people will enable depression. They will let the person do things that are actually worse for their depression because they just want the person to be happy for a little while. But that's not actually helping them. That's not actually helping them. You know, if they do things like whatever, they binge on certain things, to, to numb the pain or whatever, instead of going to see the psychologist and going to see the psychiatrist and taking medication, doing what they're supposed to be doing. 
then just at least don't enable that. You don't have to stop them from doing it, but you know, don't pay for their Netflix uh, if they're binging on it and, you know, don't, uh, don't go out and buy them junk food and or alcohol or weed or whatever. You know, if they want to do that, they can go do it themselves. At least, Hey, now, now they're getting up and getting out of the house. That's something. Um, but don't enable them just because you're uncomfortable with how long they've been sad. Another thing is you're going to face the, and some people, especially severely depressed people, you're going to face the dark possibility of suicide and self-harm. Now, again, unless you are an expert, it's not your job to treat this. However, it's important to understand that people are, people's timidity around suicide, their unwillingness to bring it up, to talk about it, to go near it, the, the fear of accidentally pushing the button that sets it off actually creates a higher risk. See, suicide happens in the dark. It happens in secret. When somebody's talking about it, they're actually saying, I don't want to do it. When somebody really wants to do it, they won't be talking about it. In fact, they'll look quite happy when they finally come to that decision. A big warning sign for someone who's depressed is if they're suddenly having a good day and they're starting to like, uh, it looks like they just made a miraculous uh, overnight change that can actually be a warning sign that they've finally decided on suicide and they're relieved of the, you know, their decision. The pain's going to be over soon. So you've got to be really worried about a depressed person who's suddenly okay, especially if they've got a history or, or concerns around suicide. Um, if they're giving away stuff, if they're talking very pointlessly, and of course, if they're specifically mentioning like wanting to die, the worst is when they specifically have a method you know, I would shoot myself, I would take lots of pills, they've actually planned it out. The key to, to helping prevent suicide is making it a really open discussion, okay? To not be timid and cowardly about having that discussion. It's a very uncomfortable discussion to have, especially if they haven't brought it up and you don't even know if they even have that risk. But to just ask them, look, You've been very depressed for a while. I need to know something. How often or do you ever think about killing yourself? And understand that if they do, you're not going to suddenly make them do it by asking that question. Okay. You can't really make things worse for a suicidal person. You've got to understand that that's as low as a human being can go. Wanting to die or wanting to hurt yourself you're not going to suddenly like pile on top of that where they'll go, Oh no, you talked about it. Now I'm really upset. You know, they're already at the most upset a human can be. You talking about, it, it's not going to make it worse. You not talking about it though, creates a space where it can happen in secret. You want to at least make sure like, Hey, if you're going to kill yourself, I'm going to watch you, you know, like I'm going to, I'm going to be on top of this. You're on CCTV. And if they're not willing to talk about it in whatever way, you're allowed to say things like, look, because you're not willing to talk about it, that actually makes me more concerned. So this is going to be annoying for you, but I'm now going to essentially have to treat you as someone who's high risk of suicide. So I'm going to have to keep an eye on you. I'm going to have to tell everybody else about it. I might have to report this to authority figures. If it gets really bad, I might have to call in police or a psychiatric team. This isn't because I want you to suffer it's because i want you to live 
and I'm going to have to be cruel to be kind if you're not willing to talk about this, if you're not willing to go see a professional and so on. So you can set the boundary around that. Like That's what I found. I've worked with a lot of suicidal people in my life. I found the best way to deal with it is just go wading all in, just go, okay, suicide is a big topic. Let's talk about it. Okay, we're going to bring this out in the open. This thing is never going to be hidden in the shadows. I'm going to be the one who boldly goes into it and I'm not going to shy away from it just because it's an icky topic, right? So, key points there. Firstly, you've got to take care of yourself. Okay, this applies to anybody. Someone suffering from cancer, you've got a severely autistic child, you've got uh, someone with depression or a chronic injury or whatever. The best thing you can do for them is be on top form yourself. Okay, if that means they have to wait, if that means they don't get their needs met immediately and they have a little delay on that, so be it. <laughs> They'll be fine. They'll be all right. In fact, you'll find a lot of the times, like if they're forced into being a little bit independent sometimes, that's actually really good for them. You know, um, you have to play the balance by here and there, but you can actually be too helpful to someone with depression where you actually enable their kind of hopelessness right but if they actually have to like push themselves to do some stuff because no one's going to do it for them um, that can actually be helpful for them recovering okay as opposed to be weighted on hand and foot which just emphasizes the victim mentality and of course builds the guilt which piles on top of the depression um, so take care of yourself first understand that your job is to support them it's not to fix them it's not to control them um, but also support, you know, that, that it doesn't mean that you run away if it gets too hard. Okay. The key is to understand, like the hardest thing I think is you got to just not take it personally. All right. It's not your job to fix them. And what they say to you when they're feeling like that is not real. It's not, not something you drop down and note and say, I can't believe you said that to me. I can't believe you called me that. They, they've got the black dog, you know, they've got this, fog in their mind that makes them essentially a different person so nothing counts okay if someone's severely depressed they're like just leave me alone i hate you they don't actually hate you they might not even really want to be left alone okay it's it's not personal i see so many supporters of people with depression take what they say personally take what they do personally it's like fine if you're not gonna take my advice i'll just leave it's like no they can't take your advice their brain isn't working properly would you yell at someone with Alzheimer's? It's really in the same category. So if they're like, oh, I don't want to do anything, leave me alone, you'd be like, okay, I'll be out in the lounge if you need me. No problem at all. all right? Or if you really get to know someone, you can actually take a risk and go, you know what? You say you don't want me around, but I know you pretty well. I think you actually do. So I'm just going to stay here until you push me out of the room. Right, and just show, look, I don't care what you throw at me. This depression ends with you. It's not coming on to me. I'm going to be the rock you need who doesn't get swallowed into that black hole with you. You know, I'm going to be your lifeline, your anchor. You can reach out and you'll find this healthy person sitting next to you who doesn't take it personally. That's what they need. In terms of, of management, one of the things you might be able to do is if you're the only person who can keep your cool and, and, and support this person, the other people in their life, are being controlling or trying to fix them or you know scared to talk about suicide or whatever you can become 
like the supporter's leader. So help others understand depression, you know, send them articles and help them find support groups and, you know, download what they can and can't know about from the psychologist and the psychiatrist and, you know, give them advice and support on what works and what doesn't. Um, Cause you might not be able to help the person with depression, but you may be able to help the people who are trying to help the person. Yeah. And yeah. And that last point is don't shy away from the topic of suicide and self harm. You'll fucking kick yourself. Um, beyond that, you you'll hate yourself if you shied away from talking about it and then they did it. Okay. You want to make sure that if they're going to do it, you put every fucking roadblock in place that you possibly could, which is mostly just talking about and making it really open topic. Um, and don't be shy. If you get to the point where you're like, I'm actually scared this person's going to hurt themselves. Then as, as your family member, as your loved one, they basically just forfeited their rights. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, I would, I would, um, hospitalize someone if I had to I would take over power of attorney if I had to uh, I would call the police if I had to 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 save the life of a family member I let them hate me for 20 years for embarrassing them by dragging them into the psychiatric hospital if I had to because I'd rather be uncomfortable and wrong and embarrassed than be too timid to prevent suicide I can tell you from experience, uh, not with people I love, but with people I've worked with, I've shied away and people have gone through with it. Now they might've done it anyway, but it definitely haunted me. Like if I had just talked about it, you know, would it have gone down differently? So you don't want that hanging over you. Trust me. Okay. Hopefully that answers the question. Very dark uh, topic to start with in the morning. Damn. Um, but as a final note, I'll just say, look, it's fucking hard. Okay. Helping someone with chronic long-term severe depression, you know, it can feel like you're, you're fighting out of your weight class. You know, it can feel like this thing is just untouchable. Right? No matter what you do, you don't seem to be helping because you won't see that your help has just been there. That just them knowing, hey, like, no matter how fucking awful I get, the person I love won't leave me, you know? Like, I, I've got that security there, this stability, this person who is who loves me so much that I can't push them away. You know, they they need that because they don't believe the world likes them very much, you know? They don't believe life is fair when they're like that. They don't believe there's any point to living. And if they just go, well, look at this person just keeps coming back. And they're fine with it. They love me enough to like love me at my worst. It can give them just that little sliver of optimism that they might need to do the rest of the work. Okay. Moving on. Question two uh, comes from Thomas. He didn't actually directly ask this for the webinar. It's just it was an interesting one that came up on a post that I did. So I want to clarify something. So I did this post where I said, like, people who don't know you at all uh, essentially ignore you. They can't help but ignore you because they don't even know you exist. And this doesn't bother you. 
There are billions of people around the world. They have no idea who you are. And so they ignore you and you're not up at night thinking about that. You're not like, Oh, why don't they know me? Maybe some people are Kardashians perhaps, but most people, you don't care that, you know, if you're living in America, you don't care that pretty much everyone in China has no idea who you are. Yet, if someone doesn't like you, you care about it a lot. It keeps you up at night. You worry about it. It's awkward. And yet their behavior is the same as if they don't know you. So you've got to start asking yourself, why does it bother me? That the people who don't know me behave the way they do. The people who don't like me behave the same way, and yet that's a big deal. So Thomas Bordeaux, he's sort of like, he didn't really understand what I mean by saying it's the same as them not liking you. I want to clarify that. What I've found is when people are worried about not being liked, they seem to have this vague assumption that that will actually be something noticeable for them. That being disliked will actually be measurable. So if someone dislikes me, that they will do something that someone who likes me wouldn't do. Maybe something as extreme as violence or something just awkward as, you know, kind of snubbing me at the party or talking shit about me behind my back or whatever. So people often just, they don't really think, in my experience, they don't really have a clear idea as to what they mean about why they're scared of someone not liking them. Like what are the actual consequences they're worried will occur just have this vague thing about somehow their reputation gets damaged and that affects future resources or something, or just that there'll be some uncomfortable emotional experience because of this. Probably something like the awkwardness of bumping into an ex at a party that you, you know, you guys split badly and you bump into each other. It's like that kind of feeling will come up at some point. But the funny thing is, is that's just not true. And when you look back over your life, you'll see it. But what you won't see is something called the availability heuristic, this bias. So there will be some times in your life where someone didn't like you, and that was very measurable. Maybe they bullied you, even though that's not actually proof that they didn't like you. It could mean something else. But let's say that they bullied you. They publicly rejected you or rejected you face to face. Or, you know, there was a very rough emotional experience right near them, right near their physical body. You know, um, they talked badly about you to someone else and that someone else believed what they said and that person didn't like you and so on. So you'll have some clear or even just vague sort of homogenous memories. I don't know if that's the right use of that word. <laughs> Just stop trying to use big words. Um, where someone didn't like you and that was directly associated with some sort of emotional pain that you experienced. Okay. So you don't, so you believe that someone doesn't like you, it hurts. Okay. But the truth is two things. One is it only hurt because you cared. It is really very unlikely that you've had many experiences of being in actual pain from someone not liking you um, unless you cared about them liking you. And that's an important point here. Um, it's the caring that hurts. 
Now, if you suddenly started caring about all those people who don't know about you at all, ignoring you, it would hurt. Okay. So if you started worrying about people not liking you, it would be painful. Mike, what's up, bro? Don't know if your mic's on there. Yeah. Just have Mike join us. Oh, there you go. Sound coming through. So we're just uh, we're just tackling a question that came through, uh, which was, I did a post saying people not knowing you is essentially the same as people not liking you. So we worried a lot about people not liking us, but their behaviors are basically the exact same as somebody who doesn't know you at all. So it's a weird thing to you know be worried about. You're fine with billions of people not knowing you and behaving as accordingly. But a couple of people not liking you and behaving the same way keeps you up at night. You know? um, so I was just trying to clarify what I mean by that, which is while we do remember that the odd occasion of bullying or abuse or being publicly rejected, most of the time when someone doesn't like you, a huge, huge percentage of the time, 95% plus, they simply ignore you and avoid you, which is the same behavior if someone doesn't know you. So we get all worked up about a kind of a fiction that someone not liking me actually hurts when the truth is caring that they don't like you is what hurts. Caring about something you can't control. And I sort of just gone to the point where I was saying like, if you cared that everybody in China doesn't know you, it would start to bother you. It would start to hurt. You'd be like, Oh my God, you know, I, I tried to post on Facebook, but they don't let Facebook there. So now they don't know about me even more. And, you know, it starts to keep you up at night and it'd be this big thing you cared about. But actually before that, when you had no awareness that they had no awareness, you were fine. Just fine. There's actually no threat in someone disliking you most of the time. You know, the idea that that's going to end in some sort of pain. It's actually, you suffer more imagining it than it actually taking place. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, take that even a little bit further, I think. Um, the context where that discussion applies most in my life is with social anxiety. So it's dealing with strangers, right? So part of what held me back was this idea that before I could approach somebody, start breaking the ice, I had to know enough about them and enough about their situation and what they would be okay with our interaction being about before I could even say hello. And that kept me pretty much paralyzed for most of my childhood and most of my adult life as well. What I discovered though, is once I stopped caring, and by that I mean uh, just simply stopped worrying about the idea of pushing people away. I realized at some point there was absolutely no way I was gonna improve my social world until I tried something. So I began trying stuff. And I had to let go of this, this particular fear. And what I found was quite the opposite. I found that I can't actually think of a single case in hundreds, hundreds of approaches where someone liked me less after the approach. What I found was even just introducing myself, even just breaking the ice, they could now put a name to my face. I'd shown some interest in them. Maybe I'd shown a lot of interest in them. Um, 
That was always better than being a stranger, every time. I think that our part of our psychology as humans is that when we don't know somebody at all, we assign a whole lot of risk to them, maximum risk, stranger danger. The moment someone says hello, they're immediately at least offering friendship. And that takes away a lot of that threat immediately. The reptilian brain can relax a little bit and say, I don't know if I like them, but I'm pretty sure they're not gonna try to eat me or something. And uh, I think that it was very important for me to recognize that simply saying hi could completely transform a relationship without having any idea of who they were, whether they spoke English, whether they wanted to talk to me. I didn't have to know. Yeah, this, um, it's great to think of real life examples. This, this is a good example like you're bringing up, which is they didn't like you any less afterwards than they would have anyway. Um, I've had a couple of experiences where people react sort of, in my view at the time, quite badly, quite quickly. Uh, there's a couple of key ones stood on my mind. I remember once I gave a girl a fright by coming up from behind and she was just like, <laughs> just staring at me like a horror movie for about five. It was like the kind of most awkward one where I just like, okay, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. You carry on with your day. Like, just get out of here. Um, and at the time I was like, oh my God, like I ruined her day and now she hates me and blah, blah, blah. But I thought she was so obviously clearly socially anxious and just a stranger talking to her horrified her. I'm like, she was already like that. Like, at least she knows which one I am. If she sees people as a threat, at least I'm like a visible threat now. You know, the <laughs> very worst, she's like, watch out for that guy rather than watch out for everybody. Um, I've, had, I've, had, I've had people stop me two seconds into me starting to talk and say, no, thank you, go away, fuck off, like that. And that's very rare, but I've had a couple of those. We're talking percentage of maybe 2% out of everyone I've talked to has behaved in some way like this. But that kind of attitude tells me like they already felt that way about strangers in general. Like they didn't have a chance to get to know me. So this can't be personal. This is a template response that they use. So that's how they were going to feel regardless of what I do. Like I haven't made things worse. I can't really make things worse unless, and you know, we won't go into this now unless I come in with neediness and manipulation and shit like that. Um, but I had, I had an experience recently where I can see the confusion here, which was I had a really good friend of mine, or so I thought, from New Zealand, essentially ghost me like I'm some needy guy chasing a girl. You know, I, I got the same kind of response I used to get when I was really needy for girls from this guy is supposedly like a best friend of mine. And it took me a while to catch on because it's hard when you think someone's a good friend. It took me a while to catch on like, Shit, I don't think he likes me anymore. I'm seeing all the signs of someone who doesn't like me, you know, uh, making it like really sort of vague and difficult to catch up and, you know, avoiding easy opportunities to spend time together and stuff. I'm like, I know this. I've seen this before. <laughs> I've seen this from people who don't like me and I'm seeing it now. And I just can't wrap my head around it because I don't, I didn't know what had happened in the interim that had changed his mind. Maybe he's been holding resentments. Maybe he heard something. Maybe he's just changed as a person. It doesn't actually really matter because the end result is he doesn't like me anymore or doesn't feel strongly enough to prioritize me in any way. Now, what hurts about that is me wishing he still did. But we take that away and he hasn't actually done anything to me. He's not burning my house down. 
He's not, you know, publicly broadcasting, fuck Dan, or trying to ruin my reputation. He's not actively trying to harm me in any way. He's just avoiding me and ignoring me. The same as seven point whatever billion people are doing right now every single day. So if I'm okay with him doing that, there is no harm, you know? And, and that's a beautiful thing, really, to have other people filter themselves out. We can't guess what they feel or what their values are or um, what they're looking for in their relationships. Perhaps they're very needy and don't want to be called out, you know? Um, I find it so much easier when someone just is straight up with me on whether they like me or not. I actually really appreciate that level of honesty. It's kind of rare. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people struggle to appreciate that. It's amazing how many hours of life are wasted trying to make a bad fit into a good fit rather than just letting them go and finding a, a natural, spontaneous good fit. I think a lot of people don't believe in it. They, they don't realize the loop they're caught and they spend so much time trying to make bad fits into good fits that all they have is like mediocre fits. And they think like, that's the best I'm ever going to get without realizing you've used up all your time and space and energy in the wrong place. And you don't know where the right place is. You haven't even found it yet. Like a lot of guys, I think they get that when they go into the dance community. They spend their whole life trying to fit in with the sports guys or the academic guys or the guys from their work. And it's never really clicked because they haven't found their crew yet. They haven't found their tribe. And then they go to, the, say, the dance community and they're just like, oh, my God, I don't have to try at all. And people like me here. Like, I've never seen that before in my life. I didn't know that that was a possible thing. Uh, and I'm definitely not saying everyone will have that experience going dancing, but they just didn't realize they were burning themselves out in an area that they, they couldn't make it work. It was never going to work, you know, and they, they just needed to go somewhere else, but they, they spent so much time trying to make bad fits like them that they didn't realize, Hey, there's an easier way, you know? Um, but it's, I'd, I'd like to ask you, it's been a long time since I cared about someone not liking me uh, in any sort of active way, like trying to fix it or anything. I was a bit hurt that my friends stopped liking me just because there, there was no closure in my mind. I didn't know why it was happening. And I kind of clung to that for a while. Like if I could just know why, then I can move on. But eventually I realized, Hey, why doesn't matter? He doesn't. There could be any reason who gives a fuck. I'm not going to try and fix this. I'm not needy anymore. But what about you? Like, when's the last time you remember actually being affected by someone not liking you and it bothering you? It's been a little while now. Um, I'd say that for me, it was mostly about women because I rated. Um, the way that women saw me or valued me or didn't value me or treated me very, very highly. My sense of self-worth was very strongly based on how women in particular would see me. I didn't, I never had a lot of close male friends before Brojo and didn't really care to, it didn't really affect me one way or the other. But if a woman didn't like me, like very directly, clearly expressed dislike, I'd feel devalued in some measurable way. 
And I can't really remember the last time that that affected me. In fact, I'm not even sure that there was ever a time where there was an overt expression of dislike. There was disinterest or there was no thank you or there was, you know, whatever, maybe even annoyance at some point if I was needy, but there was never like dislike. Um, but I always, I was always afraid of that. What I did notice is though, when it absolutely stopped affecting me, there was a situation I had not long ago, probably just a few months ago. Um, earlier this year, I met someone in, uh, when I was visiting Wellington, met a girl there and the relationship heated up pretty quickly. Turned out she ended up coming to Auckland a month later and introduced me to her cousin, who was very attractive and who we actually had a lot of in common with. Now, obviously that was a horribly awkward situation. I'd just been dating her cousin and you know she knows that. Turns out that this cousin and I both go to the same yoga studio. So I encountered her there and I actually invited her out for a coffee. I was quite curious about her, but I was curious about her for all kinds of reasons. Some of the things we discussed when I was at her house were really interesting to me. But she definitely took it as um, me asking her out. She definitely interpreted it that way. And that wasn't my intention at all. But she basically snapped. She got really, really upset about it. That was the closest I've come to somebody expressing dislike towards me. What was really interesting to me, like she basically said, don't talk to me again. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's fascinating because it's not about me at all. She doesn't know anything about me. She has no idea what I wanted to ask her. She absolutely misinterpreted this situation. Everything that's going on for her is 100% her. And it was fascinating to me to, for the first time ever to see that so clearly, that it really had nothing to do with me. Could have been anybody walked up to her. It was a bad day, she had a bad week, her boyfriend just ditched her. She doesn't like white men, I have no idea but I know it wasn't anything about me as a person. She absolutely had nothing to judge, right? We hadn't gotten that far. That was very freeing to realize that, wow, I feel like bulletproof because as long as I'm honest and as long as I'm 100% um, authentic as to who I am and what my intentions are and what I want and I'm respectful, I'm not gonna keep pushing her. She doesn't want me to talk to her, fine. That's no sweat off my back, it doesn't bother me at all. You know, I'll just keep going to yoga class and just to pretend she, she's just a stranger again, like she was before. Nothing changed. And she doesn't continue to freak out and she doesn't like actively avoid me or throw nasty glares in my direction. It's just, we're strangers again. That's fine. That was a, that was probably the most notable situation that I can describe where I, I felt some kind of uh, active sense of, I don't want anything to do with you. And it didn't hurt a bit. I think you've nailed two key points to this. One is like when someone comes and then goes away, you're actually back to where you were. This idea that something's been taken away as an illusion because you survived without it beforehand. So you never needed it. <clears throat> I imagine like a wave on the beach coming and then leaving the beaches basically as it was, you know, the wave uh, doesn't do much. Um, but not just that, the other thing was, I think the reason people are so upset when someone doesn't like them is because they think of it as some sort of valid feedback. 
Like if they don't like me, I must be less as a person. I, there must be something wrong with me. This is confirmation of that. And this is actually, you just reminded me of how I got over this. It was actually something I learned during the pickup phase where I was trying to overcome my fear of rejection is to figure out, well, what are they rejecting exactly? You know, and the way that helped me was actually a very mechanical one, which was I had to figure out what percentage of my life they've known me. That's it. So I take the amount of time that we spend together and we go, that's the percentage of my life that they've been around for. And it's always astronomically small. It's beyond calculation. It's there's so many zeros after the decimal point that you're going into this kind of almost like hypothetical realm of mathematics, right? They've, if you've been alive 30 plus years and they've known you for an hour, it's almost incalculable how small that percentage is. And so I started to realize like, well, that's how much of me was being rejected, that percentage. And also I have to check in with who I was during that hour and how representative that was. Were they getting a good example of me or were they getting a fake thing? Which, and that was the first thing is like, if I get rejected for not being myself, that isn't information at all. I can't do anything with that information. All I know is, is at that time who they were in that moment didn't like who I was pretending to be. I can't do anything with that information. I don't know if they were really, that was their normal self that day or whatever. I know that they didn't like me being fake. So I don't know if they would have liked me being real. Maybe they didn't like anyone. I've got nothing I can use there in terms of personal feedback. And then if I was being me, I'm still left with the concern of like, this might be a bad day for them. Or like in your case, this is a misinterpretation or whatever. So I can't even be sure that's me they're rejecting, even if I am being myself. Because what I'm getting is a tiny bit of me and then, then all their narratives getting chucked on top of it from their whole life. Like, uh, you know, the amount of times that I've hit on a girl, she didn't like me. And then later on, I found out she's a lesbian. I'm like, well, I had no chance. I could have been me to fuck. It wouldn't have made her attracted. You know, it's beyond. Or, you know, I, I know a couple of girls like strictly into black guys or something like that. I'm like, they were never going to like their feedback to me was never going to be helpful. Mm. But also, even if it was some sort of accurate measurement, I was being myself, they were clear-minded, they saw that, they didn't like it. Well, then all they're saying is, we're not right for each other. It's not actually feedback on whether or not that's a good thing. I know girls who genuinely love psychopathic killers. That doesn't mean that what they're doing is good. It's just that her preference is fucked up, you know? So a girl could not have a preference for me, but it's the same as somebody having a preference for vanilla over strawberry. Neither vanilla nor strawberry is better than the other. They're just different flavors. You can't say, well, if a lot of people like vanilla, it's better. Mm -hmm. So no, no, it's better for them. That's all you know. And you don't even know if they're being accurate. So I think that was the thing for me as I started exploring. I'm like, what feedback am I actually getting from someone not liking me? And the answer was, fuck all. It doesn't tell you Mm -hmm. anything. You know, it's random. Interestingly, it that probably also applies to people liking you. That feedback alone too is not really that relevant to whether you're a good person or not. Sure, a lot of people told Hitler he was the shit. That's actually a really good point. Yeah. I really like something uh, you you pointed out, um, something I think about a lot when I explore evolutionary psychology 
is the whole concept of people pleasing and where it comes from. I've got this essential, this theory rotating around in my head that um, ever since we began developing social structures as mammals, we were pretty driven to this desire of being accepted and liked by our community. And it makes some sense. It'd be pretty hard if you put a bunch of uh, wolves together that don't know how to be friendly to each other, they're gonna tear themselves apart. It's just gonna be chaos. So there was this need to be accepted. And I think that underscores, at least in the mammal brain, part of the reason why we have this discomfort with rejection, this discomfort with being disliked. But is essentially that we use other people as a mirror. We see them as a validation of, am I a good person or am I a bad person? And we, we really learn that from our parents and our school teachers and our lawmakers and our romantic partner. You know, all of them, if, if, if they feel we could be better or we're not living up to our, our uh, potential to them, they're sure going to tell us. And that's very difficult. Conquering that does take a bit of a concerted effort to realize that, hey, um, it's actually not that helpful to base my life on what everyone else wants me to be. I'm pulled in 50 different directions and none of them is healthy for me or getting me where I'm going. I just feel, yeah, I make this person happy, now that person's pissed off. I make this person happy, now that person's pissed off. I, I like this sports team, those guys hate me. You know, it's, it's, there's no way to win that game, which is why the only way out is authenticity. But it's, it's a hard road. It's, it's for, for someone who's grown up as a people pleaser, it's an entirely new game to say, I have to be my own measuring stick of my value. A lot of people don't even know where, where to begin. You know, maybe that's worth us looking into a little bit more is when does somebody else's reaction provide some form of helpful feedback? Because I do believe there is a place for that. You've, you've faded way out, bro. I'm not sure if it's just for me. That sounds better. Is this better now? Yeah, it's a bit better. I can hear you a little bit better. A little bit? Yeah. Can you hear me all right? Just, just. It's definitely softer than before, though. Just letting you know my computer or your, if you turned your mic down. Uh, let me try this. Can you hear me now? I can hear you. Okay. Yeah, I uh, moved my microphone and did something. Okay. Because um, what's interesting is once you start becoming authentic or trying to, then you do start getting some feedback. Like one example is like, so say my wife, if she's disappointed in me, it's worth paying attention to why, because I might have actually breached my own values. She tends to be disappointed in me when I'd be disappointed in myself anyway. So she can be a mirror that's actually pretty accurate. She does know me really well. She does know what I'm trying to live by. And she is upset when I don't. Now, it doesn't mean that every time she's upset, it's valuable feedback. So sometimes I'm like, you know what? Be upset. That's, I'm, I'm okay with what I did there. Um, but other times I'm like, 
yeah, you know what? I am eating too much chocolate. You, you know, if she's just pointing out something I don't want to look at or whatever. And also, I'm thinking of guys who, at the beginning of their journey, if they're going out meeting strangers there and they get a lot of bad reactions, they might actually, if they're getting a range of people from all over different walks of life and they're constantly getting a consistently negative reaction, there may be some feedback there that doesn't mean you're not, uh, doesn't mean um, who you really are is being disliked, but it could just simply be a, a blind spot, like neediness is affecting you. And everybody generally reacts. In fact, the people who react positively to neediness are normally the people who need to run away from. Um, so, like, <laughs> I, you know, there's like, I, I work with, say, like guys who have Asperger's or they're on the autism spectrum. They're going to have some behavioral traits that aren't genuine in a sense, like they could change them without losing integrity. Uh, they just don't realize how off-putting those behavioral traits are because nobody's ever really given them clear, direct feedback helpful feedback you know like a guy who never makes eye contact for example he may not realize that that's just killing it for him and they can't even get to know him because they're just distracted by this guy who looks at his feet while he talks there's just something very off-putting about that so if you're constantly getting negative reactions from a wide range of society different age levels different cultures you're not just going to one bar and meeting people. You're going all over the place. And again, this consistently negative reaction. Um, that actually might be good, helpful feedback for you. You might be doing something just it triggers off people's defense system. They can't even tell you what's happened. You don't know what's happened, but it's actually not about you. It's just a little behavioral thing. Or as I've noticed, is actually you think you're going out there being yourself, but you're not. You're being needy. You're trying to get things. You're manipulative. You're secretive. And so the feedback you're getting is, hey, I can see that you're scamming me. Leave me alone. You know? What are your thoughts? Like, when do you think it's somebody else's reaction is actually a helpful piece of feedback? That's a good question. I was, I was going to say that it's almost always, I think, I think it's almost always a valuable piece of feedback. If you're out on the street randomly approaching people, you have to understand you're dealing with random people, right? Um, but in general, people want to connect in general. So if you go into it with the right intentions and the right level of authenticity and you are authentically not needy about that interaction, it generally should be well received most of the time. And it took me a while to realize that. I felt that it was very difficult to connect at the beginning. And it took me a while to understand the difference between a big smile and trying to project friendliness and honestly being in a, a, a mindset of giving. There's a difference. I thought I was being friendly. I thought I was being um, generous. I thought I was, you know, uh, non-needy but I at least wanted validation or approval or recognition or something. And that could be felt in the same way. I see this all the time in Auckland, uh, people standing on the street corners, handing out the flyers. I can see them from, you know, 50 yards away and it's immediately cringy. Creates this reaction and he's like, Oh, they want something from me and I'll give them a wide circle or I'll just, 
you know, bullet it straight ahead. And, and it, it really helped me to see when I reflect on how that makes me feel, helped me understand why I struggled to connect with people initially. I really had to get to a place where I was absolutely fine with them reacting however they wanted. Once that happened, that was kind of the beginning of my social journey. Yeah, I, I think I yeah, tentatively agree with that. Basically, if you really are coming from a good place, most of the reactions you're going to get will at least be positive neutral. There'll be at least like no reason to react negatively. There will be some exceptions. There are some people, no matter what you come at them with, you got them at the wrong time or you got the wrong type of person and they just react badly. There's also what I'd call like positive negative feedback perhaps or something like that which is um there was a guy in high school who hated me but it's because he was the only one who could see that i was full of shit he just had the gift i was very good actor in high school everyone thought i was genuinely what they were seeing and i definitely wasn't uh, except some of my close friends i sort of let them see the real thing but this guy he, he always just he didn't do anything bad to me. And again, it comes back to the point, like I didn't suffer because he didn't like me. He just avoided me, but I could see it. And I was a hypersensitive, nice guy. I knew when someone didn't like me and it bothered me. But later on, he kind of, he didn't love me or anything, but he changed his mind a bit about me because now I was starting to be authentic. And I kind of earned his respect much later in life. And we met again for a random reason. And so him not liking me in high school is actually very helpful feedback that if I'd been seeing it for what it was, I would say, look, the one guy who can see through my armor is repulsed by me. And it's not because he's repulsed by who I really am. He's repulsed by how fake I am. You know, this is a guy who's clearly very confident, very real, very authentic. He was very like kind of guy. He's just said what he thinks all the time, got himself in all sorts of trouble because of that. The only one of those rare teenagers who really doesn't give a fuck what people think of them. One of the few. And if a guy like that finds me repulsive, that's actually helpful feedback. Whereas all the people who are needy and insecure found me really great to be around. That's not necessarily good feedback. I'm getting a lot of validation, but maybe I shouldn't be. Um, and then the reverse of that, like I think of my recent friend who no longer stays in touch with me. When I really like, unpack that with with my wife i started to remember all these times of these kind of warning signs that my friendship with him wasn't very healthy he liked me mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons that you know no longer apply so there was actually a story that played out like i can see why he doesn't like me anymore because what he did like about me was the unhealthy stuff that i've since dealt with so he liked me as a drinking and drugging buddy you know, I remember there was a time there was a girl I was seeing and he hooked up with her. There's just these little signs like this isn't the most respectful, loving friendship available. There's actually, you know, he liked it if I complained a lot. He didn't like it if I had like a kind of optimistic attitude about things. He liked the whinge. So there's all these signs I'm like, actually, I'm being rejected by someone in a way that shows me I've changed for the good. And if I can see it as their way, it's still like, oh, you know, we had great times together and it's like they've died almost, you know, he's gone now. But actually, if he still liked me, it would mean that I still had work to do. There's possibly a way mm. to interpret that, you know? Mm. Um, yeah, interesting stuff. 
Yeah, I think I think that's that's a great reflection, and I've seen some similar types of reactions from people. Whereas I seek to improve my life, prove myself. I've gone through a couple different journeys in my life. One was building a really successful first business. Um, that's probably the one where I remember this the most. There were certain friends that suddenly liked me a whole lot more because I had something to give them if they wanted, even if it was just validation and recognition. And others liked me less because I challenged them as to where they were at in their lives. I thought that was very interesting is that um, it created this sort of divide. I think anytime we're changing and growing, we're going to see that among the people around us. And we have to be careful about both situations, both the people who want to get closer and the people who want to move further away and assess why. Is there anything for me to learn there about myself or am I just learning something about them that I didn't know before? Yeah, I think the probably the best way to sort of conclude this is the idea like someone not liking you is feedback, but it's not necessarily bad feedback. Mm. And that's I think that's the issue that this person was bringing up was this, like many people, they think if someone doesn't like me, that's definitely a bad thing. Whereas mm. actually you don't know, it's just information and it's information mm. with a lot of variables, mm. you know, most importantly, it tells you a lot more about them than it does about yourself. It tells you about their preferences, their mood, their, they might actually like you and this is how they show it, you know, they've just been messed up. It doesn't tell you much about yourself and what it does tell you about yourself isn't necessarily negative feedback. It could actually be validation that you're on track or it could just be a little uh, hint that you need to shift something minor amount but especially a single person's feedback is almost completely irrelevant. You need to see patterns, mm. themes, trends. And mm. like you, when I started my coaching business, that had a polarizing effect with people I knew. You know, mm. those first, you remember, who was it? It was Logan and Lance who first came to Brojo. Those guys were right on the periphery of my social circle. And then when Brojo started, they came right into the center. And there were other people mm. who were in the center who just drifted away to the periphery when I started talking about right. development and stop drinking and stuff, you know? So I just noticed this kind of like change of the guard. It was really interesting as people who I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm surprised we didn't talk more. We fucking, we got a lot more in common than I could have ever imagined. And then there are others. I'm just like, yeah, I don't really want to talk about all that sort of stuff anymore. I don't think we actually have anything else to talk about. Um, yeah. Mm. I think, I think the key realization for me about this whole topic is that when someone expresses dislike towards me, I feel very, very fortunate. It saves me a ton of time. I know now where to stop investing my effort and just invest it in somebody else. There's now one less person in my yoga class to be curious about, right? That's actually helpful. And the other thing I really like about it is it, it, it provides a fantastic mirror for me to see how I'm doing with neediness. If, if I just, you know, like water off a duck's back, just didn't, I didn't even get wet. I'm like, that's awesome. I love that. I like where I'm at. And particularly the more intense it is, the more intense that expression is, the better. I'm like, wow, that doesn't affect me at all. That's exactly where I want to be 
look how I've grown, right? That reflection I find very helpful. If I feel very distressed by it, that's more of a warning sign for me than anything that, hey, I've still got an attachment to what other people think. I should explore that a little bit more. Clearly, I've still got some work to do. And I'm sure I always will. I would not be surprised at all if it hurt a little bit. But I find it really beneficial. Yeah, for people to just declare where they're at in your world and you can just accept it. It's a beautiful thing. Honesty. Honesty and acceptance. Yeah, that's the key here. But, um, you know, I think about it. I just got this picture in my head that when I used to go back when DVD stores existed, you know, or whatever. I'll go there and I'll be like, oh, I really want to watch that movie. And you do that tragic thing where you pull away that first box and underneath it, there's no other ones so that they're sold out, you know? They got like the cover and then underneath it's like the gray one that says that you can't hire this anymore or whatever. And there's that kind of thing like, well, at least I don't have to consider that option. I can't get it out. Like mm -hmm. DVD stores used to eat up so much of my time because I'm like, oh, it's like 20,000 movies in here. How the hell am I going to choose one? Yeah. So when one sold out, I'm like, well, that's one less to think about. Um, yeah. And actually, yeah, it's interesting to do that with people in your life. Like if they're not really into you, yeah. your job's done they've deselected themselves there's seven and a half billion people it's good if a few of them deselect it's less mental bandwidth to take up but some people just go but why isn't that one available so they're going oh it's just not available like yeah it's, that's and, and not available right now exactly they might be around next week who knows but do you try and wait for next week or do you go find another dvd to watch you know that's the key yeah. Hey, I yeah. reckon we got time for one more if you're up for it. Sure. Cool. Um, so everybody else who sent questions in, we'll go on a wait list. Um, but we just got time for one more. And uh, Michael liked this one. So it's from our boy Chris. And Mike and I know Chris quite well. So partly this will be a specific answer for him, I think, based on our knowledge of him. Um, but also it's quite a general topic that I think applies to a lot of people so i'll read it out um so mike can hear as well so he says when you're in a dating relationship and the woman you've been dating for three to four months isn't being able to trust you fully and is sabotaging the relationship due to fears and unconscious limiting beliefs she has acquired from previous relationships such as fear of abandonment vulnerability freedom not choosing the right one blah 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 what is the best thing to do as the man in this relationship He's given a couple of options. One, keep dating her until her fears subside. Two, confront her and make her aware about her unconscious sabotaging behaviors, such as constantly going hot and cold, being secretive and flaking. Number three, end the relationship as she's carrying a lot of baggage that the man is not supposed to deal with. He ends with saying, fact, all of her dating relationships in the last five years have lasted between two weeks and three months. So, summarizing that, he believes he's with a woman who is basically sabotaging the relationship due to insecurities, and that uh, he get, I get the impression he believes that she does this as a pattern. She's always done this kind of thing. He wants to know: Do I stay and help her with it in some way, or do I just bail? I uh, wow, I've got a lot to say about this, so I'll, I'll go first if that's okay. I just ended a relationship exactly like this. Um, 
just just a few days ago. Situation was, you know, the the relationship, the the connection had a lot of the basic ingredients, some mutual interests, good discussions, good physical connection, um, good personalities. We generally genuinely liked spending time together, but she's just in the exact same way that Chris described, she's had, I think, a series of bad experiences. I can't tell how much of them were created by her as a result of this same problem I experienced and how many of them were, she just picked the wrong guy and, you know, um, ended up hurt. But she definitely approached the relationship with an expectation that it was going to fail. That was like ingrained from the beginning. Like if I didn't text back within a couple hours, she was pretty sure I was never texting back again ever. That was it. I'd found another girl and I was, you know, or that I was pissed off with her or, and every time she did it, I'd call it out gently and say, that's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I didn't even know you texted. I was just in a work call, you know, um, how you doing, you know, and I'd keep pursuing and friendly in a friendly way, the relationship. It became clearer and clearer to me though, that this wasn't the right relationship for me. It wasn't just about this particular situation, which I could have dealt with and helped her with and just kept coming back and been there no matter what. And I think she would have stayed as well. It was that it created a very unbalanced investment. I would be the one pursuing her and trying to give her comfort and confidence that I was in this for the long run. And she'd be constantly backing away and putting up shields and, you know, not going away, but still not really going into the relationship either. That isn't what I want right now. Um, there's so many other options out there. And there are other things that I'd like to have in the relationship as well that are important to me that are more and more important to me as I learn more about myself this year, like someone who's really into fitness and will go to the gym with me and go running and do a bodybuilding competition or whatever, you know, things like that. So, so I have to say that for me, there was, there were several reasons this wasn't the perfect fit, but I'd have to say near the top of the list was the fact that she simply wasn't in a place that she could be a healthy part of the relationship. Me putting myself in the coaching situation where I'm helping her confront her fears, her uh, limiting beliefs about what a relationship can be, about how honest she can be, about how trusting she can be to someone, um, would completely change our dynamic. I don't wanna be her dad, I don't wanna be her coach, I wanna be her partner. She's not quite there yet, so in my case, I, ch I chose to just basically be there for her, but kind of let it cool down into a friendship. That seems to be the best situation for both of us at this point. I'm not abandoning her, I'm not loving her and leaving her, right? But I'm also not in continually investing in the relationship. But I know right now that's not the best place to invest my energy. Pretty relevant example, eh? That's good timing. Um, yeah, I've got a couple of thoughts on this too, similar to yourself. One, the key one here is you're their partner. 
So if you're being forced into the coach or the dad role uh, and you can't prevent that from happening, then it's, it's done. You know, it's not going to survive. You, that would be a very unhealthy relationship if you thrived on that or continued with that. You know, it's a very fucked up. You know, I like the word partner more and more as time goes on because it's starting to have a deeper meaning. I used to hate that word. I always thought it sounded like just so... Um, but now I realize it's actually, it, it has this great connotation of equality and support and encouragement team. You know, my wife and I are such a team and I've, I've never really had it quite that strongly uh, at all really with other women. And that's what made her different. I'm like, she's got my back. Like we're both facing in the same direction. We're not baggage free, but we both want to deal with it properly. And there was a critical moment, and I think this is the make or break for being in this situation. When Lucy and I were first seeing each other in the early days, she did something. I can't remember the details, but it was an image. Ah, oh, it was something along the lines like she didn't tell me what she wanted to test if I would guess, and then she punished me for not guessing it, essentially. And this is a classic, like, immature female this is a classic kind of move they do expect you to mind read and then punish you for not being able to and i was like okay this is going to be an important conversation for us so i pointed out i'm like look i i've seen this before i know what this is and this is seems to be like a remnant of previous baggage that you're bringing from other guys where they didn't really care about you and you had to test if they did care about you and so on you need to know with me, things have to change. You have to stop playing games. With me, there's a different way of having a relationship. With me, if you want something, you say it directly. And if I can't guess, it doesn't mean I don't care about you. It just means I can't read your mind and you have to accept that. And if you want me to know what you want, you tell me, or you at least show me very obviously. It's not a measure of whether or not I care as to how well I can read your mind. That's an unreasonable thing. I wouldn't ask you to do it. And so on. We had this kind of conversation. It was really tough i remember sitting in the cafe going fuck this might be our last conversation you know there's this real precipice of make or break and i sort of let there just sit with that i'm like this is time for you to be different in relationships whatever you've done with your past exes and stuff maybe you had to do it maybe you didn't it doesn't matter we have to make our own rules our new rules we're going to do a relationship like neither of us have ever done before we're going to create it ourselves we're not going to follow the rules we're not going to do what your girlfriends do with their boyfriends and so on you know we're, we're not going to do what all the other people do wrong we're going to do our own thing but you need to be on board with that both of us we'll both call each other's shit out we'll both work on it together we'll get healthy together sort of thing and she did really obviously did like from that moment on she would start bringing stuff up and going i'm doing that thing again but you know blah 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 and she was actively working on it right in front of my eyes. It was amazing to see. I'm like, wow, she really is going to do it. Uh, I really didn't see that coming. And what I realized, you know, I remember there was a guy who came up to me at a bar once and he said, um, good cunts find good cunts. That was his saying. And it sat with me. We just thought it was hilarious because he was drunk and talking to everyone. But What's that with me is kind of like, you're going to find what you are, essentially. And nobody's completely healthy. We've all got issues and baggage. 
but essentially there's two types of people you're either facing forward or backwards so there's people with the issues and like i want to work on this and get better and then there's the ones who aren't like that and when you get with someone you have to really figure out which direction are they facing because if mm. we're not facing the same direction this is doomed and you're going to get that investment and balance you know I, I think that's, that's hugely relevant to the people listening to this podcast, because if you're into self-development, you're changing, you're growing, you're trying at least to move forward to a better life. If you are with a partner who is not, things aren't going to get better. It's going to be very difficult. And I've, I've, I've spent some time coaching guys who are into self-development for a few years now and their partner isn't and they're like we're going further and further apart i don't know what to do how do i how do i address this you know it's a fascinating problem um i've never encountered that i think because it, from the very beginning of the relationship like this 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 last one i know that if she's not at least trying to improve herself there isn't anything that we can build on there's nothing we can build together. So there's, there's really no relationship foundation there. Yeah, I think that's the key. And that's, that's what Chris has to figure out. And it requires a confrontation, which is essentially, are you going to change this stuff with me and I'll change my stuff with you? Or are we done? Cause you know, one thing to keep in mind, especially someone who's in self-development and this is my, just my, it's my gut instinct. It's not like solid fact. But from what I've seen and working with people for a very long time is that the negative frame is stronger than the positive one. So if you take someone who's trying to improve themselves and you put them with someone who's a victim, the one trying to improve himself will be dragged down nine times out of 10, opposed to mm -hmm. the opposite of them pulling the other person around. The victim mm -hmm. position is much more hardened and so the frame is stronger, which means, you know, I, I learned that when it came to like de-escalating criminal offenders who had become really agitated is I just had to stay calm stronger than they were staying agitated and they would become calm. That was the easiest. All I had to do was not get agitated and wait. And they would have to just deflate. They just couldn't keep up. The stronger frame wins. And what I've found is somebody in a victim frame is usually stronger in that frame than especially someone new to self-development or someone in the early difficult stages, you know, they've still got a lot of self-doubt, they're struggling with it. And they're with someone who's just a hundred percent negative. They're going to like, that's going to eat away at them, pull them down, distract them. There's going to be just logistical issues like, Oh, she's having another drama. I've got to put aside my work again. Um, and before you know it, you've, you've relapsed. They've pulled you in with them. It's also like you said, there's a there's a measurement process here. Um, when you end up with someone like that, as you go, okay, how did that happen? What is what's the feedback for me? Where did I meet her? How did I meet her? Did you get past my radar somehow? Or actually have I got some work I still need to do because I've attracted someone like this or been attracted to someone like I found, especially before I met Lucy, there was this kind of weird phase where I was mostly like dating quite confident, healthy women, but I was still finding ones that were a little bit broken, more attractive for that reason. There's something just a little bit off there that 
coach in me wanting to fix people. And one of the key conversations I had with Lucy was, look, I can't be your coach. That's not going to be good for us. Like, even if you need coaching, we're going to go find another coach. And I won't do any of that work because, and she fully agreed. I'm like, that's going to make things sick for us. There's going to be something unhealthy. And I think guys into self-development might struggle with this is this urge to help other people can actually become an attraction. Like, oh, there's one I can help. And combined with like, say she looks good and you have some things in common, you don't see it like slipping in like a, an appendix to a report kind of thing. It just goes in there with it. And you start to realize like, yeah, this person's a fixer upper and that's not my job. That's a psychologist's job. That's a coach's job. It's not my job. And so mm-hmm. the key thing is like, I'd like to point out to Chris is I, I know in Chris's I do, he's probably already talked to her about this. But to actually have a make or break conversation, either you turn around and you say, this is the relationship where I stop doing that stuff and I fix it or we're done. You know, this isn't like an ultimatum. You don't have to do it. It's just, I can't be with you if you don't, you know, for my own health. I think that's exactly right. It's very important to realize that everybody's different. She's going to be different than the girl that I met. Um, she may be willing to change. She may be interested in changing. She may be sick of all this. Um, but the key question Chris really needs to ask is, is she really actively trying to move forward in her life to something better? Or would I have to pull her along, spend half my energy just trying to keep her alongside me as we walk down the street? Um, because if she can't invest, you're investing for two it's not going to work very long. Yep. And that's tough. It's it's important not to be black and white about it. People have their ups and downs. You know, Lucy's had like depression at some point. So I didn't expect her to be raging ahead like I was during that phase. Um, But she treated me well during that phase. She worked on it. She went and saw the psychologist and everything. She went and got the medication. She didn't just give up. You know, so she was always facing in the right direction. She just had a setback. And that's a key thing is what do they do when they're really put to the test? Mm. Someone says they want to well, they want to change and they want to face that same direction as you. What are they like when everything goes to shit? Because that's going to show you. And, and a key thing, especially when you're attracted to someone, like you just said, what are they actually doing? Not saying, but doing. Like take the blinders off. Like, oh, they promised to change. What, what behavioral, measurable behavioral change have you seen consistently take place for weeks or months? It says, yeah, they are a different person now. And especially the other way around, which is woman with a guy and they're wanting to know if he's going to change. Guys are great at doing like a short burst kind of superficial effort, especially nice guys. They say, look, I need you to initiate sex more for so like a week. They will. And then once they realize you like them again, they just poof, they just button off because they're never really doing it for genuine reasons. They're just doing it to regain your approval. So you have to give it a bit of time. If they say they're going to change and they start changing, don't get too excited yet. See if they can outlast the first burst of motivation and see if they can outlast like you're just getting your validation back and keep this up. See if they're doing it for themselves. They have to be doing it for themselves. If they're doing it for you, then they're not really doing it. 
they'll do just enough <laughs> for you to get off their back and that's it yeah yeah it can be it's hard true. to know the difference yeah yeah good question chris yeah i think we'll wrap it up there there's still quite a few questions come through but those are all the ones um, from our contributing members and uh, the free guys uh, will go on a wait list hopefully we'll be able to do something with them later on next month um but yeah some really fascinating stuff come through uh, mike you missed the first one i'll send that through to you it's about helping a family member who's got severe depression and what's mm. your role in that mm. um but yeah great questions everybody and please send more through and uh, mike and i will hash them out and give you our rants and our opinionated <laughs> perspectives <laughs> whatever they're worth yeah. yeah yeah thanks guys thanks dan all right catch ya see you again